Hello, and welcome to Grand Final History. In this episode, we go back to 1922, the 26th season of the VFL, a year where Richmond would be aiming for its third premiership in a row. 1922 would set the scene for some of the major events to occur in the next 20 years across the world. But not everything was that serious. The pharaoh Tutankhamun's tomb was discovered in the Valley of the Kings in Egypt in November, but it would not be fully opened until February 1923. So more about that next episode, I'm sure. On a more bizarre note, 1922 was also the year of the Straw Hat Riots in New York City. Yes, a riot about wearing straw hats. Apparently, there was an unwritten rule that, in summertime, straw hats should not be worn after September 15. Some young men decided to break the tradition and harassed straw hat wearers two days earlier than the agreed unwritten date. But when they chose to harass dock workers, events turned nasty. Brawls and rioting broke out across the city and the unrest continued for an entire week. People were injured, some sent to hospital, and this all occurred before social media was even invented. Violence and stupidity over ridiculous causes has a long history. On a more serious note, in Italy, 1922 saw Mussolini's fascists march on Rome as he began his takeover of that country. It would not end well. In Germany, hyperinflation was underway. Back in August 2019, 12 German marks would buy one US dollar. By July 1922, it took 563 marks to buy one US dollar. By December 1922, it was up to 7,000 marks to buy a US one dollar. It was going to get worse. Moving back to Melbourne and on to more local matters that have a very close connection to football. 1922 saw the launch of two new newspapers. The Sun News Pictorial, a precursor to the Herald Sun, was launched in September. With a focus on pictures and sport, as well as daily news, the Sun would provide significant coverage to the VFL and launch many, many media careers. The Sporting Globe newspaper, printed on pink paper every Saturday evening, was launched in July 1922. In a time before TV and radio, newspapers were the primary mass media of the time, and the Sporting Globe would be available just one or two hours after the end of the VFL games, with full descriptions, pictures and scores, providing much-needed football, racing and other sports results information to a sports-hungry public. A Wednesday edition would be launched in August 1922. The Saturday edition of the Sporting Globe would run for over 50 years, up until 1979, with the Wednesday edition finally closing in 1996, as newspapers began to give way to TV and other media. In January 1922, the VFL were encouraging the Melbourne Cricket Club to expand capacity at the MCG. This would not be the last time the two bodies would be dealing with redevelopments of that ground. The World War I general, Sir John Monash, was given the job to allow more spectators to see the game. Otherwise, there might have to be restrictions on entry to the ground, and people would have to book to get their seats. And yet, as would be seen in many years to come, there was some dispute about who should pay for such upgrades. The ongoing issue of an equitable division of the year between football and cricket made some progress in January, when it was agreed that cricket would get 25 weeks and football 25 weeks. 
what the start and end dates would be, was still open to discussion. Club membership tickets would also be going up from 5 shillings and sixpence to 7 shillings and sixpence. That's about $33 in today's money. A membership for general admission to home games for AFL clubs today is about $100, depending on the club. So maybe not such a bad deal in 1922, especially as membership tickets then included home and away games, as well as finals for all participating teams. While some clubs reluctantly supported the change, given that the ground managers held the upper hand in these negotiations, Carlton, South Melbourne, Richmond, Collingwood and Fitzroy members were initially resolute in their opposition. They saw it as yet another tax on football to support cricket clubs, a charge that would be repeated for decades to come in the challenge of managing the ground and facilities. However, the clubs that voted against the increase in membership could not issue membership cards for the coming season. If not at the price agreed with ground management committee, the cards would not be recognised for admission. So these clubs were looking at starting the season with no members and none of the revenue from membership. The league agreed to meet with the ground management committee again, even though compromise seemed unlikely. And when given the choice between increasing the price of membership tickets to allow access to all games and potentially the finals, or keeping the old price, but only for home games, all clubs moved to the new higher price and got their membership cards printed. After all of the fuss, by the opening round of the season, clubs reported record sales of memberships, even at the much disputed higher price. Down in Geelong, there was much angst about the potential for a Geelong team to compete in the VFA. The Geelong advertiser was adamant in its opposition. It could not see how the city and surrounding region could support a VFL and reserve team as well as a third team in the VFA. The advertiser identified this as an existential threat to Geelong's position in the league. If the VFL team's position became too weak, it might be dropped from the VFL. Opening the way for a new club, maybe a VFA club from Melbourne, one that was using this scheme to weaken Geelong and open up a place in the VFL for their own team. We'll see how this unfolds in the coming year and whether the advertisers' suspicions of the entire proposal were justified. Late in January, in the Herald, Leander had a lengthy and insightful column reviewing the situation in the English Football Association and the large transfer fees that soccer clubs were paying one another to secure players. While he noted that such a scheme had not yet occurred in Victoria, it was but a matter of time. Informal arrangements had already occurred, where one club might approve the clearance of a player to another club based on some quid pro quo. A return clearance of another player, perhaps. So the arrival of transfer fees was correctly predicted by Leander. While these are no longer part of the modern game, the trade period that occurs after the end of the season does resemble the quid pro quo system of the 1920s, where complex series of trades across multiple clubs do occur if all the participants can agree. Perhaps it's just more transparent these days. In March, Leander produced another very interesting article detailing the cost of running a VFL club. Now the amounts may be very different to the cost of running a club in the modern era, but the principal issues seem remarkably the same. More successful clubs have higher membership and more revenues to fund their success. Player payments are the major cost for all clubs. Most clubs just manage to break even, as Leander observed. The principle of club management being, as the money was raised for running a team for the season, 
so it should be spent. The more money they receive, the more they spend. And generally, the better the team. While in the modern game, it is the distribution of TV rights from the league to the clubs that stops most clubs from going broke. A similar thing was happening back in the early days of the league. Except rather than TV rights, it was the distribution of profits made from the attendance at finals of the previous year that made the difference. Clubs budgeted on this and would suffer if poor weather meant low numbers attending the finals. But all the better if the top team lost a game and a challenge match was required to complete the season. Another final meant more money to be distributed. It was an even split to the clubs from the league. No equalisation philosophy in this early era. Changes for the upcoming season included Essendon moving to the Essendon Recreation Reserve. Known to most people as Windy Hill. Fitzroy named the former South Melbourne skipper and two-time premiership player Vic Belcher as their coach. Collingwood were losing Con McCarthy who had captained the team to the 1919 premiership but in season 1922 he would be playing for Footscray in the VFA after they offered him the astonishing amount of £400 for two seasons as captain coach. And as we still see today when a player moves clubs for a better deal there were howls of indignation of how money was ruining the sport, the death of loyalty to the club, and so on. But others, like Jack Worrell, made the obvious point. In any other profession, if you were offered more money, you would move jobs. Why were professional footballers criticised for doing the same? The season opened on Saturday the 6th of May. The previews in the press were generally positive, with some concerns on the amount of money in the game. Pivot, writing in The Age, had noted it was a change from early years. For example, when a memo was sent to a Melbourne Reserves player in 1900, in the amateur era, which said, quote, You have been selected to play on Saturday, and, failing to do so, you will be liable to a fine of ten shillings and sixpence unless you can satisfy the committee that you were unable to attend, unquote. Umpires were to be escorted by mounted and foot police to prevent some of the rowdy behaviour that had been seen in recent years. While talking on police matters, it should also be noted that constables had been directed to stop the youths kicking footballs on the streets, due to the damage caused to telephone and electric wires. A crackdown on youngsters playing in the streets was predicted. Despite cold weather and the threat of more rain, Round 1 saw approximately 100,000 people attend the various league and association games. Richmond had the honour of unveiling their premiership flag in front of a packed punt road, before overrunning bitter rivals Collingwood in the final quarter, giving the local supporters hope for a third premiership, while Magpie supporters trudged back home, thinking thoughts of revenge for the match later on in the season. Essendon were coming from the other end of the ladder, Wooden Spooners in 1921, but now at their new home ground. The Essendon VFA team had merged with a reformed North Melbourne in the VFA. So the VFL Essendon team were the one and true football representatives of the suburb. And their first game at the new home attracted 22,000 people who saw the former Wooden Spooners beat Carlton, who had played in last year's grand final. A promising start for the red and black. Melbourne had let south all day, yet the Lakesiders kept pushing. But it was the red legs that held on by a goal, and Fitzroy had a strong last quarter to beat the Saints by two goals. 
the 1922 season was underway. After the second week, there were only two unbeaten clubs. Melbourne were too strong for neighbouring Richmond, and, in another surprise, Essendon continued their winning way, this time down in Geelong, which put them on top of the ladder. It would have been a happy train ride back to Essendon for the team and their supporters. Round three saw Essendon hosting South Melbourne, and at three-quarter time, the home team were three goals down. But the Dons veteran Fred Baring went onto the ball in the last quarter, and Essendon stormed home, kicking seven goals to South Melbourne's inaccurate seven behinds. Three wins from three games was just the start the same olds were looking for. Round four saw Richmond lose a close game down in Geelong after they'd had the bye. This left the reigning premiers with one win for the season, and the challenges would continue to come for the punt road club. In May, a satirical article has eventually now proven to be more accurate than the author would have ever hoped. At a rowing regatta between Scotch and Xavier schools, a tied race was not replayed after the medical advisor vetoed the row-off. The article wondered if there might soon be the day where a medical advisor to a league team would examine players at half-time and send them home if he considered them unfit to resume. Or doctors at a cricket match would rule a batsman out of a game if struck by a fast bowler. Now, concussion protocols in both sports are a standard part of player management. Satire a hundred years ago, standard practice today. Melbourne supporters were excited about some new recruits, the Dunbar brothers. Harold, Edgar and Hugh came from near Kyneton and they all stood over six foot. True country boys, they trained on the family farm and travelled down to the city each Saturday for the game. Meanwhile, Fitzroy supporters were also getting excited about their rover, Glen Gale. He was an early code crosser, having grown up in Rugby League Sydney and played for South Sydney Seconds, but he'd been born in Victoria and when serving in the war was spotted by Fitzroy's Percy Parrott when the battalion was playing Australian football. Percy got Gale down to Fitzroy. His challenge, as identified by the Herald, was to lose the rugby league habit of holding on to the ball for too long. The other minor point in the article was, was Gale recognising the benefit of giving up smoking because, quote, he found the weed not improving his wind, unquote. It would take some time before this became apparent for all players. Round six saw Essendon have a day out against Melbourne. While only nine points in front at three-quarter time, Another fourth quarter burst saw them kick seven goals to one to win comfortably and take a firm grip on top spot. In June, the Age ran a series of articles bemoaning the impact of money on football. While acknowledging the need to compensate players for expenses and lost time, the excessive payment of players, the trading of players from one club to another in search of higher payments, and the evil of gambling were all condemned. In evidence that some things have clearly changed in modern times, the then Secretary of the League, Mr Wilson, said quite emphatically, quote, The League does not countenance or encourage betting on the results of football in any shape or form, unquote. I don't think that we would get similar comment from League administrators today. In a round seven game between St Kilda and Essendon at the Junction Oval, play was stopped just before three-quarter time, to pay respect to the funeral procession passing the ground for Lieutenant James Bennett, a World War I veteran born in St Kilda who achieved fame in 1919 as one of the mechanics on the epic 
first flight from England to Australia with pilots Ross and Keith Smith. He had been a member of the St Kilda Club and silence greeted the military bugler who stood in the centre of the ground and played the last post as four aeroplanes flew in tribute overhead. In July, the ongoing tensions between the VFL and the VFA administration cooled slightly, with a renewal of an earlier agreement that players would need clearances from their clubs to move between league or association competitions. The intent was to dial back the speculative bidding for players that had been escalating since the last similar agreement had lapsed. There was also discussion, but no agreement, on the potential to have one controlling body for football in Victoria. We'll see how long the goodwill between the two bodies is maintained. Essendon lost their first game in round nine after their bye. They came up against an accurate Collingwood, who gained the honour of being the first visiting team to defeat the Dons at their new home ground. Some comment was made about the poor choice in allowing a game at Essendon when the races were on at Mooney Valley, resulting in a huge crowd at the Essendon train station and on trams in the area. I'm not sure that that was ever resolved. After such a fine start to the season, Essendon would lose four games in a row, with Fitzroy taking top of the ladder. But then Fitzroy would lose to Essendon in round 13. The Maroons had a bye in round 14, and after their loss to Essendon, they were to undertake an extraordinary journey to be the first VFL team to visit Perth. A four-day trip from Melbourne on trains to reach Perth. Two players got injured during kick-to-kick sessions by the railway tracks when the trains were stopped. Three games were played in Perth. Wins against West Perth by one point and East Fremantle by 11 points in front of 11,000 people on a workday and a loss to a combined Western Australian Football League by 16 points in front of 18,000 people. And there was no shortage of entertainment. Drinks, smoke nights, tours of the Swan River and trips to the races to keep the Fitzroy players entertained. Then, one more game on the way home in Kalgoorlie for a loss by 20 points against a combined Goldfields team. The players and officials eventually arrived back in Melbourne at 1pm Friday, July 25. Despite four days of travel on trains, they had to play Richmond at Punt Road the next day. Fitzroy lost by eight points. That was a tough buy round. The issue of violence on the field and the role of police and the legal system was again in the news in 1922. In September, the courts heard a case of a match in July between Collingwood and Carlton, where George Saunders of Collingwood was charged with assault after punching George Duncan of Carlton. After a marking contest, Saunders punched Duncan on the chin, knocking him out for about five minutes. Saunders' evidence was that he thought Duncan had lost his block, and he struck him in self-defence when he thought he was going to be hit. Saunders was fined five pounds, or had the threat of jail if he did not pay the fine. Also in September, the Herald reported on the need for louder bells to signal the end of a quarter or of a game. At the Richmond-South Melbourne game, a Richmond player had taken a mark after the bell had rung, but the umpire had not heard it. A goal was scored, which did not alter the overall result, but it was not good for the game. It should be noted that the MCG had a new, larger bell for 1922. From an old ship called Lysander, the bell had been used at Pentridge to warn of escaped prisoners before spending time at Coburg and Richmond fire stations. After being replaced by modern electric alarms, a suggestion was made by a supporter to the fire brigade 
and the bell was presented to the Melbourne Cricket Club. It measured nearly a metre high, and its rich tones would signal time for another 30 years before being replaced by electric sirens. While Essendon had been the frontrunners early in the season, the other leading clubs for the year were Collingwood, Fitzroy and Carlton, and by round 17, these top four teams were confirmed. However, the final order was still open to question with one round to go, where Collingwood would be trying to hold on to their top spot in their game against Essendon. And the games went as expected, although Collingwood just managed to beat Essendon by three points in front of 32,000 people at Victoria Park in a game that was close all day. Fitzroy beat Melbourne, which meant that they had third spot, all the while Carlton had the bye, so they could just rest up for the finals. Richmond had tried to overcome their slow start to the season, but were three games shy of the final four, and would not defend their premiership. South had had a poor season with only four wins, and took the wooden spoon. One interesting point about the game between Melbourne and Fitzroy was the venue, Princess Park, despite it being Melbourne's home game. The unusual change of location occurred because of the 50-year jubilee celebrations of Victoria being one of the first places in the world legislating for free, compulsory and secular education. The MCG hosted a school children's exhibition of dancing, physical exercise and other displays in front of the state governor and other guests, concluding with a maypole dance with 50 teams in action at the same time. I've included a photo of the MCG taken on the day at grandfinalhistory.com.au. I doubt that a school children's celebration would take the place of any league game these days. Football was to return to the MCG on the 23rd of September for the first semi-final between second-place Essendon and the rested fourth-place Carlton. The second semi-final would occur the following week between Collingwood and third-place Fitzroy. In the Herald's preview, a fast, strong game was expected. Essendon had won the opening game of the season against the Blues, and Carlton had won their home game at Princess Park, so neither could claim a psychological advantage. Essendon were expected to get their goals through snap-kicking, which is a term I think we should hear more of, while Carlton would take more deliberate shots for their goals, when, predicting the winner, the Herald's Kikoro favoured the Blues, as did Richmond's captain, Danny Minogue, along with Melbourne's rover, the respected George Haynes. In the age, Pivot declared Essendon were the faster team, while Carlton was a bigger, stronger team. There had been excitement in the lead-up to the first semi-final, with a total eclipse of the sun crossing Australia on the 21st of September. Scientists from all over the world had come down under to make observations and test Albert Einstein's general relativity theories, published just seven years earlier. The theory came through with flying colours. Now, the question a couple of days later was which team would pass the semi-final test. On the day of the match, there were several changes in players' numbers, with the only correct list being issued by the football record, which, for many years, had exclusive rights to publish such lists. The league had learnt from the 1921 experiment of higher prices for finals and returned the entry costs back to one shilling and sixpence for the outer and two shillings and ninepence for the stand, about $6.50 and $12 in today's money. Not sure the current league administration would ever look to reduce entry prices after raising them. It was Essendon's first finals appearance since 1912, and a huge turnaround from their bottom-of-the-table result the year before. Carlton had had a week off to help prepare for the big game, and were confident they had the team and finals experience, despite being fourth on the ladder. 
A record crowd of over 64,000 people crammed their way into the MCG. The reduced price had brought the crowds back in. Now, whether they could all see the game is not known. It was not the most attractive game of football in terms of skill and finesse, but there was an intensity to the play, and the close scores kept the crowd engaged all day. Carlton had the wind in the first quarter, but inaccurate kicking cost them the chance of a bigger lead at the first break. Essendon gained a slight lead at half-time, but the defence work of Carlton was not allowing the Dons forwards to operate in their usual style. As Observer and the Argus noted, Essendon should have had a substantial lead, but there was too much of the crush and smash and far too little open play. The third quarter had some good high marking from both teams that brought cheers from the crowd, but still it was a tough game, with defence being stronger than attack. Carlton did manage to take the lead at three-quarter time, but with Essendon kicking to the scoring end and a strong wind, many wondered if Carlton's four goals 8-32 to the Dons' three goals 5-23 was going to be a big enough lead. Carlton spent the final quarter defending grimly, and Essendon seemed to be intent on wasting opportunities in front of goals, scoring behinds, rather than the necessary majors. As the clock ticked down, the Blues led by a point, and many were tipping a draw. But then the Dons' Jack Moriarty took a mark, a somewhat doubtful mark according to some observers, but awarded by the umpire Jack Elder. Moriarty was in his first season with Essendon, and this was his 13th game, and he had a chance to put Essendon in front and into the final. He had been Essendon's leading goal kicker for the season, with 35 goals, but none so far in the four quarters of this game. But his kick was true, and shortly after, old Lysander rang out to toll the end of Carlton's season. Essendon's journey from bottom to top was still a chance. The second semi-final saw Collingwood taking on old rivals Fitzroy. The Magpies had topped the ladder, giving them the right of challenge. A double chance to win the Premiership, and Fitzroy were confident they could force this onto Collingwood. But Collingwood had comfortably defeated Fitzroy twice this season, and the Herald expected the Magpies to win again. The weather was not great, and with rain falling before the game, which may have helped keep the crowd lower at about 43,000, but the muddy conditions did seem to be to Fitzroy's advantage. They were not considered the most skillful club, but were known for their strong players. They had become known as the men, or the man's team. The game was a low-scoring affair, with Collingwood having a two-goal advantage at half-time, with the scores 4-goal-7 to 2-goal-7. As the third quarter started, the rain came. Light was poor, and it was hard to see who had the ball when play was at the opposite end. Fitzroy had a strong wind, but the ground was so slippery that it could be hard to score. At one point, three players were sliding on their backs at the same time, causing laughter from the spectators, who were even more amused when a policeman patrolling the boundary also slipped over. But the strength of the Roy boys prevailed, and they kicked four goals, and now they had a two-goal advantage. Conditions were even worse in the last quarter. Players had trouble holding onto the ball. It was a slip-and-slide affair. But Fitzroy had the lead, and Collingwood needed goals. After a long struggle, and with only four minutes to go, Reynolds Webb, the Magpie Rover, took a mark in Collingwood's forward line and kicked Rawley. One more goal would get them into the final. Fitzroy had to hold on for just a few more minutes. Collingwood surged forward again, and their full forward Harry Chewis, who was playing in his first season, could have kicked the winning goal. 
but unlike Essendon's Jack Moriarty the week before, Chewis's shot went wide. The Maroons fall back. Hurry Jenkin had to kick the ball back in. Get it to a teammate and they might be safe. A stray kick to a magpie player could see the season over. But he was known as a resolute defender, experienced and used to pressure. The ball returned to play, but moments later it was in the hand of Collingwood's Bill Toomey who passed it to Charles Panham, who snapped at goal, but just another behind. Time was up for the Magpies. They'd made every effort to regain the lead, but when the bell rang, it was Fitzroy in front by four points, six goals ten to Collingwood's five goals twelve. The Roys would be celebrating and showing their appreciation to veteran full forward James Freak, who, in appalling conditions, scored five of the team's six goals. Fitzroy would play Essendon in the final, and the winner would take on Collingwood for the premiership in the grand final. The final, as it was known at the time, retrospectively it has been classified by many as a preliminary final, was held on the 7th of October. Kikero, in the Herald, tipped Essendon to win with their superior system and pace. Surprisingly to some, Moriarty, who had made himself the hero by kicking the winning goal in the first semi-final, was dropped, along with Walter Fraser. They were replaced by Harry Hunter and Charles Farrell possibly better suited to the expected conditions. There were 50,000 at the MCG, and they saw Fitzroy play their best game of the season. As Pivot in the Age said, a triumph of the science of football adaptability. While conditions were fine, and a great deal better than the previous week, the game took a while to settle down. The opening of the second quarter was an indication of what was to come. James Freak led out with his unique crouched style, and Percy Parrott kicked the ball in to the forward line. A pair that had played so many games together knew where the other was going. But, on this occasion, Freak spilled the ball. But no matter. Parrott continued his run down the ground, gathered the ball, and kicked the Maroons' first goal. In modern times, we might talk of a bromance between two men. Perhaps it could be said that Parrott and Freak shared a Fitz romance in their partnership on the field. The game was evenly poised at half-time with Fitzroy on 3-4 and Essendon on 3-5. And Essendon managed to hold on to the lead at three-quarter time, despite Fitzroy dominating most of the quarter. But the Don supporters must have been worried. It was only the Maroons' terrible kicking that was keeping Essendon in the game. The final change was Fitzroy, 4 goals 12, to Essendon, 6 goals 6. The tide was with the Maroons and it came into force in the last quarter with five goals to Fitzroy to finish the game off. Essendon had done themselves proud in 1922, coming from last the year before and establishing themselves at their new home ground, but now their season was over. Fitzroy would take on Collingwood in the grand final. The 1922 grand final was on the 14th of October. This may seem late in the year for our supporters, familiar with the one day in September, but it's only the second latest grand final. September Grand Finals only became common after 1937. From 1919 to 1936, October was the month for Grand Finals. Fitzroy's captain was halfback Chris Lethbridge in his first and only year as Fitzroy captain. Born in East Brighton, he grew up in New South Wales in Wagga Wagga, a source of many fine footballers for the VFL and AFL. He played for Sydney YMCA and represented New South Wales, when he turned up at Fitzroy and asked for a game, they were not aware of his state representative achievements. He made his Fitzroy debut in June 1913 
and played in the Premiership side that year. Over his 10 seasons and 148 games for the Maroons, he would represent Victoria three times, and after his playing career, he would coach Fitzroy in 1925. The Roy's coach was Vic Belcher. In the 1921 Grand Final, he'd been a boundary umpire watching Richmond beat Carlton. In 1922, he was coaching Fitzroy as they took on Collingwood. Not sure that that's been done since. Vic had grown up in Brunswick, but always supported South Melbourne. So while his brother played with Essendon, Vic would cycle across town to the Lakeside Oval, where he played as a defender and ruckman. He played in the 1909 Premiership and was vice-captain for their 1918 Premiership. He was the first, and for many decades, the only South Melbourne-slash-Sydney player to have played in two Premierships. He was inducted into the Australian Football Hall of Fame in 1996, and in 2003 was named in the Sydney Swans Team of the Century at Back Pocket. After his playing career, he spent some time as a boundary umpire, and would later spend time as a field umpire in the VFA and country football, and would even have one final game in the VFL as boundary umpire, in 1930. Belcher was open to help from others and had five-time premiership coach Jack Worrell who had played for the Maroons before coaching Carlton and Essendon and former skipper Alex Lone who led the team to their first two premierships in 1898 and 1899 down at the club. They both attended player meetings and offered advice from their years of successful experience. Collingwood's captain was Tom Drummond who had joined the Magpies in 1916 after playing for the Collingwood District side the year before. He was part of a compelling centre line, playing on the wing with Charlie Panham Jr. in the centre and Bill Toomey on the other wing. Noted for his marking, consistency, elusiveness and efficiency, he may not have been one for spectacular play, but he did deliver results. He'd played in the Magpies' 1917 and 19 premierships and 1922 was his first year as captain, taking over from Dick Lee. But, like Con McCarthy had done in 1922, he would leave the Magpies in 1923, lured by big money to coach Williamstown in the VFA. That role actually fell through when his clearance was delayed, and he went to country football instead. He did try to return to Collingwood in 1926, but ended up playing five games at South, who at that time were coached by his former teammate, Charlie Panham. His career ended on 99 games, and Magpie's supporters were left to wonder what might have been achieved if he'd stayed at the club. Collingwood were, of course, coached by Jock McHale. In his 11th year as coach, this was his sixth grand final, and he already had two premierships. From 1917 to 1922, Collingwood had only missed the grand final once, so this was familiar territory, and he would be keen to add to the 1917 and 1919 flags. The umpire was Jack Elder, officiating in his 10th grand final and 295th game, including 39 finals. He had started umpiring back in 1906 and established a reputation as the leading umpire of the day. And in 1996, the AFL named him as umpire of the century. This would be his final game. He was carrying his retirement letter in his pocket as he made his way to the match. An interesting fact about the remaining officials for this grand final was that they were all former players for the competing clubs. Goal umpire Jack Monnan had played 170 games for Collingwood, including the 1903 Premiership win against Fitzroy. Holding the flags at the other end of the ground 
would be Ern Jenkins, who'd played 179 games for Fitzroy, including premierships in 1899, 1900, 1904 and in 1905 against Collingwood. Adding to the on-ground experience were the boundary umpires, two former Fitzroy players, Wally Naismith with two premierships, and Dick McCabe, who, unlike his more successful colleagues, held the record at the time of the most games, 148, without a finals appearance, at least as a player. This was an experienced umpiring team. Would today's umpires benefit from more former players taking up a whistle or a flags? The Sporting Globe had Collingwood as their favourite from the Premiership. They had defeated Fitzroy twice in the regular season, but the Maroons had won the semi-final, played in rain, mud and slush. The weather for the grand final was fine, and the Magpies had more finals experience than the Maroons. The football record would not make a prediction between the two clubs, but it did point out that the Magpies had more recent grand finals experience in 1920, 19, 18, and Fitzroy had to go back five years to 1917, where they lost to Collingwood. Old Boy in the Argus noted that only one team had won three finals in a row to take out the Premiership. Essendon, in 1912, had also ended the season third on the ladder, and were the only team so far to win the Premiership from third. So Fitzroy would have to match that rare achievement. The Roys would take the same team into the grand final, while Collingwood made three changes. Possibly the most important was the return of Dick Lee for what would be his final game. He felt his knee would allow him to play, and the club was keen to have his experience and skill in front of goal. Harry Saunders had completed his six-week suspension for hitting Carlton's Alec Duncan. He'd also been charged by the police and fined five pounds, and he would be playing at fullback. Eric Cock, who had also been suspended after that ugly Carlton game, came into the forward pocket. The unlucky trio to miss the game were Harry Curtis, who had actually captained Collingwood in 1923 before business commitments brought an early end to his playing career. But he would eventually become the club president for 26 years, four years longer than Eddie Maguire's 22 years. Ironically, both Curtis and Maguire had somewhat messy ends to their presidencies. Also missing out were Tom Hammond and Rip Hanna. 50,000 people were at the MCG on a warm 24-degree day to watch the grand final. Those who got to the ground early, which was most people, saw the curtain raiser, a grand final in the Junior Football League, effectively the VFL reserves, where Collingwood, 8 goals 10-58, easily defeated Essendon, 1 goals 9-15. It was some revenge for the Collingwood Juniors, who had been defeated by Essendon Juniors in 1921. But was it also an omen for the senior team? Collingwood were first out on the ground, even as the Junior League game was still in progress. Fitzroy followed shortly after, and when their game started, it was the Maroons who attacked first, but their forward push was not effective, with the ball going out of bounds. Dick Lee got Collingwood moving with their first goal with a grand drop kick on an angle from 50 yards out. Sid Coventry ran from the wing to get their second, and the Magpies had an early lead of 13 points. Just the start their supporters were looking for. But the Maroons had been playing pressure football in the finals, and they were ready to respond. Goals to the super duo of Parrot and Freak, with strong defence from their captain Lethbridge, meant the quarter-time break saw the Maroons two points up, two goals 5-17, to Collingwood, two goals 3-15. Early in the second quarter, Lee had a chance to score his second goal, but he put the ball out of bounds. 
Shortly after, the Magpies forward pocket, Ted Baker snapped a screw kick for goal and put them in front. Freak, continuing his good finals form, responded with a goal for Fitzroy. Despite the fine weather, many players were struggling with the slippery surface, and Lee was just struggling with his kicking, putting another shot at goal out of bounds again. It was a hard and exceptionally fast game, as described by the Herald. Collingwood had the advantage of the wind in this quarter, but the Fitzroy defence were holding firm. The half-time break provided an opportunity for a rest for players and spectators. There was nothing in the game, with Fitzroy 3 goals 6 and Collingwood holding a small lead on 4 goals 5 The opening of the third quarter belonged to Fitzroy. Within seconds of Elder bouncing the ball, McCracken handballed to Len Gale, who delivered an accurate pass to James Freak, who kicked their fifth goal. The lead had changed again. From the bounce, it was the Maroons again driving forward, and centre-half forward Steve Denallen passed to the red-hot Freak, who goaled again. Before Collingwood could draw breath, the ball was in the Fitzroy forward line again, and this time it was Percy Parrott who had a gettable shot, but only scored a point, giving some relief to Collingwood. The tide seemed to be flowing Fitzroy's way, and their supporters were frenzied with delight, according to the Sporting Globe. When Jack Elder reviewed the game, he said that Collingwood seemed to be bewildered by the Fitzroy onslaught. A moment later, Fitzroy's Gordon McCracken tapped the ball to the rover Clive Fergie, who scored another goal. Three goals in six minutes, and the Maroons' supporters were loving it. But Collingwood had experience on their side, and they began to get possession of the ball and looked to recover some of the initiative. They forced the ball down to their forward line, and Sid Coventry passed to his brother Gordon, who got the first Collingwood goal for the quarter. Now it was the Magpie Barrackers cheering and making their presence felt. But then it was back in the Fitzroy forward line, and Parrott kicked truly this time. Before people could settle, it was Collingwood into attack, and Gordon Rattray kicked a goal. In an era of typically low-scoring games, the third quarter had seen six goals in 15 minutes, and there was plenty of time to go. The game continued at top pace, but perhaps the effort came at the cost of accuracy. Each team were missing shots and scoring behinds. Towards the end of the quarter, Fitzroy were able to get another two quick goals and extend their lead to 21 points. But still, the Magpies responded, and Gordon Coventry used all his skill and might to bring home a long shot at goal. The third quarter break had spectators trying to digest what they'd seen. A six-goal quarter from Fitzroy, where they had almost taken the game away, but Collingwood managed three goals to keep themselves in touch, and they were going to be kicking to the scoring end in the last quarter. It was a grand final to appreciate. The three-quarter time scores for both teams would have been the winning scores for most finals played so far in the 1920s, and there was still one quarter to go. Fitzroy had a 15-point lead, 9 goals 10-64, to Collingwood, 7 goals 7-49. The start to the final quarter was delayed a little, as Fitzroy players changed boots and adjusted their studs. Perhaps both clubs appreciated the extra time to regain their breath, after such a frantic period. Or, was this Jack Worrell's advice? He had previously kept Collingwood waiting in the rain after half-time in the 1911 Grand Final as Essendon players adjusted their stops. Collingwood were the first to move into attack, but Lee's kicking woes continued, and he was only able to score a point. The Magpies were making more of the attacking, but, according to the Globe, 
not with their usual coolness. Points were being added to the score rather than goals. And when Dick Lee missed the goals again, there was a nine-point gap to Fitzroy. Now, the pressure was building on the Maroons as they tried to seal the game but could only kick behinds themselves. Fitzroy began playing in the flanks, looking to use up time to protect their lead. Their back pocket player, Jim Atkinson, was identified by the Sun as the hero of the hour for his strong work defending the ball and clearing it from danger. Then there was a run of play for Fitzroy that got the ball to Freak, who rather than attempt to add to his total, passed the ball to forward pocket player Len Wingraft. Len was born in North Fitzroy and was a three-time club champion, but one of his proudest moments must have been kicking the goal that sealed Fitzroy's seventh premiership. In a fitting touch, Lee managed to kick the last goal of the day, his 707th and final goal in his career. But it was too late for Collingwood. The final scores were Fitzroy 11 goals, 13, 79, to Collingwood 9 goals, 14, 68. Those three goals in six minutes at the start of the third quarter were the pivotal moment in what was otherwise an even game. The Maroons had seven premierships from the league's 26 seasons and the crowd cheered them all the way to the dressing rooms. Freak had four goals and across the three finals he'd kicked 11 and Parrot had four, reminding all of what a pairing they made and the value that the Roys had got by persuading Parrot to come out of retirement in round 17. In the rooms after the games, speeches were given by the club president Don Chandler, followed by Captain Chris Lethbridge and Vice-Captain Gordon Rattray, then coach Vic Belcher, and even the coaches' assistants, those veterans of premierships Jack Worrell, Alex Sloan, gave speeches. And, as it is a fine tradition, the Collingwood president and former Fitzroy Premiership player Jim Sharp and Captain Tom Drummond also visited the Fitzroy dressing rooms to offer their congratulations. Fitzroy would have a low-key end of season, with a smoke night in the week after the grand final and a motor trip next weekend. No interstate travel or games against the South Australian Premiers for the so-called Premiership of Australia this season. There were a few retirements to mark the end of the season. Fitzroy's Chris Lethbridge could end his career in the best way possible as a Premiership captain. Collingwood's Dick Lee would pass the champion full forward baton on to Gordon Coventry and retire after an injury plagued 17 years, 230 games and 707 goals, an epic performance given the conditions and style of the game in that era. Umpire Jack Elder was also hanging up the boots, but he said he would be pleased to do what he could for the game. In conversation with Kikoro at the Herald, he was concerned that players were being coached to play the game more strenuously than ever. He would prefer focus on a systematic style of play that had brought Collingwood success in the years gone by. He also thought the game was not as good as it had been pre-war, but this season was an improvement and next year should continue the trend. His advice to young umpires, and this applies today as it did then, was that they should always be calm, cool and collected and not allow any player to bluff them. And that umpires should not over-umpire. If they tried to apply every rule of the game at all times, the umpire would be whistling all day. When the VFL delegates met in November, along with the congratulations to Fitzroy, it was confirmed that no new club would be admitted to the league, meaning season 1923 would continue to be a nine-team competition. 
Bad news for Footscray, Brunswick, North Melbourne and any other club that had been campaigning for admission. Meanwhile, the VFA were dealing with the fallout of a terrible bribery scandal around their grand final, where Port Melbourne defeated Footscray. Four Port Melbourne players reported being offered bribes to play stiff. The background is reported to have involved large bets being made on Footscray winning that had become risky as Port Melbourne's performance improved and ladder leaders Footscray had to rely on their right of challenge after losing their semi-final. Also, the ongoing campaign by Footscray to enter the VFL would not look as strong if they lost the grand final. The Port players refused the bribe and Port won a close grand final by two points. After many meetings and deliberations, Footscray's president and two players were charged, but only one player, Vern Banbury, who was considered to have acted alone, was found guilty and banned for life. Yet again, money and gambling were seen to be staining the sport of football. Despite a lifetime ban, Banbury was made a life member of Footscray in 1923 and in 2010 was inducted into the Western Bulldogs Hall of Fame. November also saw the triennial Australian Football Council meet in the VFL rooms. Many rule changes were proposed. Some of the more interesting ones were the proposal to allow substitutes, which was lost. Charles Brownlow noting that it was necessary in every game for teams to take the risk of having their players injured. In the modern era, we have just moved to an ever-increasing interchange bench. The New South Wales delegate proposed a crossbar, and for a goal to be scored, the ball would have to clear the crossbar, thus making goals more deliberate and a reward for better effort. This was defeated. There was much discussion on proposals from South Australia and Tasmania to allow throwing the ball, but these were lost. And that's where we'll leave season 1922, with Fitzroy celebrating their premiership and the rules largely unchanged. I hope you can join me next time when we look at season 1923, the 27th season of the VFL, where we'll see who will become premiers. If you've enjoyed Grand Final History, please leave a review wherever you get your podcast from. The more goals we kick, the easier it is for others to find the podcast. If you have any questions or want to leave feedback, please email me at info at grandfinalhistory.com.au or check out the grandfinalhistory.com.au website or Facebook or Twitter for more grand final history.